Uh, Matthew chapter, tw- chapter 10, starting in verse 24. We had gone through a text. We left off at, basically at verse 23 and then picked up sort of a verse just to kind of put things into context. But we really want to make sure we're not missing anything. So from 24 to 33, let's take a look at that text. Would you read it with me? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Now, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach from the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body that cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men... Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Will you pray with me, please? Father, in this time now we give to you, we ask for you to do a magnificent thing In all of our lives here, to you, God, we hand ourselves, our attention, our intention to apply what you speak to us today. And I pray that you would speak bespoke to each of us now. God, that you would do a perfect work. God, that we would understand and we would know you and love you more. So God, please have your way. I commit every second of this to you, Lord. Please perfectly minister in this time, we pray. As we commit this time to you, Lord, open our hearts and minds to your word, even as we open your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would again, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. I know it might have been easy to miss in our text, but in verse 26, verse 28, and in verse 31, three different times, Jesus tells us not to fear. And it's a subject that we don't like to approach, but we need to. It's unbelief's taser. It's my hope's jailer. It's the faceless combatant in my being a world transformer. It is the great obstacle to my personal ministry and declares war with my progress and yours in Christ as the greatest opponent to your faith and makes insignificant God's infinite might and care. It disables your walk and makes a mockery of the Father's love. Every what if, every furrowed brow to the obscured and darkened unknown detains, derails, deflates, and ages us. But not all fear is sin. You see, there is a saved and an unsaved fear. Or if you will, a godly and an ungodly fear. And if we don't understand that, 
When we read to fear God, we assume that God must be on some kind of crazy power trip. That somehow what God wants us all to act like the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz when we approach him, shaking in our boots without any concept of his intimate love for us. But that's not the case here. What we'll find is there is a godly and an ungodly fear. And the difference is where I am or where you are in the mix. Here's the problem. Just like you, I have pre-programmed and mastered the wrong fear. Before Jesus, it was a tyrant. It ruled in its own despotic fury, and since the fall, it has been so. And with that, I think we need to see how fear looks in Scripture before we get to our text. So if you have those beautiful Bibles in your lap or those apps or whatever, open up to Genesis for a moment. Because it's really where fear is introduced. Fear is not introduced into Scripture until chapter 3. Fear is not introduced with the creation of all things. But we do read this according to Job. That when God laid the foundations of the earth, And please hear me on this. When God laid the foundations of the earth, the angels were singing. That tells me that even God likes to work with background music. And when He did, the angels sang in awe. As God made things, people were in, the the angels were in awe of God's creation. And understand that magnificence existed and that reaction to God existed before the fall. And here's the way it was. Angel saw something huge, magnificent, undeniably greater than them. And what they did is they went, wow. That was the reaction to the great and magnificent and mighty before the fall. Before the fall, the word we might say is reverence. We might revere that. And that is the word, by the way, interesting, this word, yare. Try that word just once for fun. Yare. Try that. Yeah, not bad. Yare means to actually be, to react to something huge in front of you. And you can react in one of two ways. Before the fall, our reaction to something huge would have been the same, which is, wow. How awesome. Or we might even dare say how awful, because it really wasn't kind of some awe. It was full of awe. But we don't read that with man because of the intimacy that man had with God until the fall. Once man and woman partook of that which God forbid in Genesis 3, they became keenly aware of themselves. You see, understand, the enemy never spoke, the serpent never spoke to Adam, only speaks to Eve who has secondhand information about God. And when he does, he ultimately throws this out at you, at her. He says, no, 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 God's a liar. He's just trying to make you at the back of the queue. And what he really wants 
is to be preeminent and you have to be at the back. But if you do this act of rebellion, you'll be first. You'll be like God. You'll get the cut in the queue and get to the front. Understand, before that point, everything was beautiful to the sight and good for food. The flesh that craved food ate with no sin. The eyes that saw beauty partook of it with no sin. But when John tells us that the elements of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, until the pride of life stepped in, even what man saw was okay, until pride stepped in. And all pride is, in the simplest sense, is me first. So when the enemy came at her, what he said is, hey, 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 you could be first. There's the point. You need to think more about yourself. You need to put yourself into the center of this thing. You need to be the center of the universe, not God. And when that happened, fear stepped in. And here is the difference between the godly fear and man's sinful fear. Godly fear sees something huge, but doesn't make them the center of their universe. So seeing this goes, wow. But when man puts himself in the center of his own universe and looks at something bigger, he says, whoa. And fear steps in. When God goes looking for Adam and Eve, he knows where they are. Adam and Eve don't know where they are. And he says, where are you? Not because God doesn't know, but because Adam doesn't know where. Why are you, you could see it was like, what in the world are you doing? Why are you hiding from me? I created you to be intimate with me. I desire an intimate relationship with you. And all of my magnificence and infinite qualities should not be a problem when you realize my love. Because when your eyes are on me, what you see is my love. When your eyes are on you, you see your insignificance in comparison. And there's the problem. Is the moment we are focused on ourselves, we will always see ourselves as smaller than instead of seeing God as greater than. Then you add your problems into it. What happens when you add your problems? You will either, as you add your problems into the mix, see yourself as lesser than, or see God as greater than. And from the time of the fall, God has been sequestering us to trade that ungodly fear for a godly fear. God's like, look it, to fear Him, to revere Him is to say, get your eyes off yourself and try to put your problem with that, but rather, get your eyes on me where you can see I'm greater than the problem. Yes, you're lesser, but if you looked at me, you would see me look at you with eyes eyes of love and of care and of faithfulness and devotion and commitment and covenant. And if you saw that... You would never have to get to this place where everything else controls you. Genesis 3.10 It says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is what happens, beloved. 
is that we get this place where, look at, I recognize, look at myself, oh my goodness, this needs to be covered up. Look at where I'm at. I need to hide me, because me's the issue now. Now, before we knew Jesus, fear was our tyrant. It was our despot. It was our slave master, like it or not. As a matter of fact, what Hebrews tells us is that our whole life we lived as a slave in bondage to our fear of death. But what we realize is that God, from the point of the fall, continues to reach out and says, which of these do you really want? Do you want to live your life in fear? Putting yourself in the center of your universe where all of a sudden everything else is huge and you're smaller than? Or do you want to put me in the center of your universe where you'll see that I'm greater than all of your things, all of your trials, all of your challenges? And let's be honest, the problem with fear is it's usually faceless. What that means is, is that we don't even know what it we're afraid of. It's the, what if? What if this thing could happen? But we haven't seen it. It's the obscure areas where we're now going, now what do I do? And so we're afraid of things and we can't even see them most of the time. Usually the things we see that we're afraid of are actually a healthy instinct to get away from a dangerous thing. Once when we were actually in the Central America, we were serving at a Christian mission base and they had like we have toilet stalls here in in public places, they had shower stalls. They were covered just enough, guys ones and girls ones, but just the same. And and there we were, and we had kind of been out, and we had been doing really manly things. We actually had caught a a six-and-a-half-foot iguana. Ultimately, one of being our dinner that night. It was really, really good, by the way. doesn't taste like chicken. It tastes like sweet fish. Anyways, flaked off like it it was, anyways. So we had kind of, kind of came out of that thing. We felt like we were burly mountain men. And we go in to take a shower. And down at my feet is this scorpion. Black. Big old nasty thing. The way I describe it today was probably infinitely larger than it actually was. But I'll just be honest. And if you'll pardon me for being this sort of transparent. When you're naked, everything's bigger. And it's, if it's offensive. And there you are with no defense whatsoever. And I'm looking at this scorpion going... Okay, this is not good. Now, that kind of fear is actually a healthy fear. Now, ultimately, by the way, I would get stung by a scorpion, not that big fella, but one in Italy of all places. I don't recommend that experience, by the way. But I would like to say that there is a difference between what we see that we could be concerned about. That's healthy. And the fear of what we don't know. So hear me on this. From that point in Genesis, God reaches out with the intent now to show us that we really should revere him and not just fear. And the truth be told, either we will fear him or we'll ultimately end up fearing everything else. So, what we realize, Genesis 15, God speaking to Abraham, don't fear, Abram. This is, by the way, 15.1. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Do you see what God is doing? He's going, you're afraid because you're looking in the wrong place. Get your eyes back on me. I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. I should be more than just what protects you. I'm actually your goal. His grandson, Genesis 32:11. as Jacob is waiting for his brother, convinced that his brother wants to kill him, and for good reason, he prays this, Genesis 32:11, "Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him." 
lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. It's like, God, I'm afraid. And what I need is your deliverance. But please hear me. God wants to deliver our focus, our position. Well, he wants to deliver our perspective before he delivers our position. He wants to deliver what we're looking at before he delivers the problem that brought us to that. Do you remember Peter walking on the water? It was when his eyes were off of Jesus and on the waves that everything changed. Now, God calls us to fear him, not men. Exodus 14 As the men challenge, as they've seen the promised land, but notice what they say, we are like grasshoppers in comparison to them in their sight. In other words, notice again, the issue is, I'm looking at me, and I'm looking at it, and I'm so much more insignificant, so much smaller than it. And the two faithful spies say, don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Get your eyes back on the Lord where fear is vanquished. The next book, Leviticus 25:17. Do not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God because I am the Lord your God. Numbers 14, verse 9. Where the challenge is, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. There's our issue of seeing the promised land. Deuteronomy 3, verse 22, you must not fear them, for the Lord God himself fights for you. And I love what God says in Deuteronomy 5, 29, when he says, Oh, that they had had a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God's like, look it, if your eyes were on me, oh, things would change. They would be so much better because, let's face it, when you do things out of survival, survival is, it, is the most selfish place you can be because survival says, do whatever you have to do to not die. And we've watched guys come close to drowning their own wives because they didn't want to drown and they're hanging on them because all they're trying to do is survive. And when your eyes are on the problem and you see your smallness to its challenge, it is almost impossible not to be selfish. From the fall superimposed into my spiritual DNA now as yours, as the fundamental element to the metal of my being is selfish fear. God never says, by the way, to ignore the problem, but to compare it to the everlasting majesty of our almighty God, which thing really truly is to be feared. I cannot let this little momentary impediment impair my sight of the sun above me. Because when I do, I can forget even that all the light around me comes from that same beautiful golden burning ball in the sky. Listen, this is the way it kind of plays out. It's like this. I can take my fist on a sunny day, one of those six days of the year here where it's sunny. And I can take my fist and I can hold it up to the sun like this and I cannot see the sun. That doesn't make my fist bigger than the sun. It just means that my fist is too close to me for me to see things in perspective. 
And if you've ever seen one of those to scale the sun compared to the to the earth and all of those things and how the earth is like a marble and the sun is kind of like a beach ball, you kind of see how huge it is and compared to the thing you're standing on. But we could do this and not see it. And this is what we do with our problems is that we take our problems and we hold them so close that they look huge where we don't see Jesus anymore. Strange, though, all the light that's still around us is still coming from the same sun. We can forget that when we're doing this. No wonder why we're told to cast our cares before God. Not lift them up because sometimes they're too heavy to carry. But he says, cast them. Throw them down. Throw them down because if you throw them down, what you see all of a sudden is how entirely tiny they are compared to the infinity of the God you lay them before. But the moment you hold on to them, what you see is they're big and you're small. And God doesn't want that. Understand from the very beginning, this is the whole concept, is this difference of the beauty of God's reverence. Psalm 89, 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be revered or in reverence to those around him. There's a parallel. He says that that fear is reverence. And that's what the word means. So, either we'll fear and revere God or I'll fear everything else. If I could just see how big he is, how could anything look remotely big in comparison? Joshua teaches us, by the way, in Joshua 4.24, that the victories that God brings in our lives are only to convince us and others to actually fear him like we should. He says that all the people of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And I remind you, a godly fear is not shaking in your boots before God. A godly fear puts him first and you just go, wow. What if this week, this week, we lived in true and godly fear before God? How that would change everything. Do you remember when you first gave your life to Christ? How everything else was so tiny? You were small, but it was cool because God was so big and he loved you. Remember how everything was kind of colored and sprayed in the beautiful colors that shone off of the magnificence of God's throne and you saw it in the shadows, reds of his mercy and the blues of his grace and somewhere in the taunting winds of life that sequestered that carefree gaze into now this whole like, to to sort of like now kind of contrite myself with the waves now and my focus gets redirected to these little momentary problems and they look so huge and I don't even see those beautiful colors anymore but what I still what I feel now is this gravity the the sea that I was walking on didn't matter whether it was stormy or not because it was still underneath me but now my eyes are on the wrong thing and I sink underwater and overwhelmed And I surrender myself to the gravity of that temporary and the weight of that gravity is this fear. Judges teaches us that fear, by the way, makes me unfit for the battles God will put before me. Judges 7.3, if you remember the story of Gideon, the first thing God does is he pulls a Deuteronomy 20 verse 8 where he says that anyone is going to fight if you're afraid, go home because that fear is contagious. He's got 32,000 men, if you will. And of that 20,000 of them go home, two-thirds of his crew have bailed on him because they're afraid. And I realized this is what the issue is. Because for us, what is the battle we face? It's normally not a physical battle. God makes that clear. It's a battle over the souls of your friends 
and over your family. And you know that God has called you to be bold. He's called me to be bold. And as he calls us to be bold, it's the fear that cuts off our legs with the starting block. And this is what it looks like. God says, look at that fear needs to be changed. It isn't that God says, okay, look at I just don't fear anything because you were created to fear. You were just created to godly fear, not to ungodly fear. There's the problem. He's going, it's not about just going out to pretend like it's not there or don't be afraid, but rather look at the right thing and then get in awe of it, which is him. Samuel, show me, by the way, that reflecting on God's past victories only bolster that reverence of him. In 1 Samuel 12, verse 24, it says, Fear the Lord, serve him then only in truth with all your heart, and consider the great things he's done for you. Can you remember the amazing things God's done for you? Hey, this week, that was just Wednesday of this week that God did a miracle for us and said, No, why don't you just stay there now? But how soon before I'll forget how great that was? I mean, we've paid 50,000 American dollars this in just to stay here. So if you think you're not worth anything, multiply that by, or divide it by the amount of people in this room and see how much that that was just the expenditure. And look, at, we would, we'd spent all, the only reason that it was, that was the bill. We, God just gave it to us because you are worth it as far as he's concerned. And he has the sense of humor to keep us here to remind you. Now, I'm not saying that to pat ourselves on the back because it wasn't ours to spend. It was his. But I just want you to know, he really, really, really loves you. And those victories that God gives, those provisions out of nowhere, the water out of the rock, are constant reminders that he really is that big and your problems are really that small in comparison. First Kings or Second Kings, the Kings books, show us that my victory lies directly in reverence to him. Second Kings 17, verse 38, it says, But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. We serve him in fear, Psalm 211. We worship him in fear, Psalm 57. And I remind you that fear is a reverence to his majesty. Because it isn't about looking at how little we are. It's about being consumed with how awesome he is. There's purity in that fear. Psalm 19.9. There's teaching in that fear. Psalm 25.12. There's revelation in that. Psalm 25.14. There's goodness. Psalm 31.19. God's attention. Psalm 33.18. Satisfaction. Psalm 34.9. Salvation. Psalm 85.9. Mercy. Psalm 103 verses 11 and 17. Sympathy. God, Psalm 103 verse 13. Blessed. We are blessed. In that fear, Psalm 112.1, there's fulfillment in that fear. Psalm 145.19, and there's God's delight in that fear, Psalm 147.11. But the secret of overcoming that fear is a complete confidence in God's perfect presence. It was David who said in Psalm 23.4, it's easy to remember, 2.3.4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. That's why. I'll fear no evil because you're with me. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He says by verse 3, Though an army encamp against me, not just against my men, but against me, a whole army, my heart won't fear. 
the war should rise against me, this one thing I'll be confident. Hey, whether that is because of your age or race or social status or whatever, God says, listen, listen to what he says. He says, no matter what rises up against me, no matter what the attitude is, this is what I'm going to be confident in. Verse 4, one thing I've desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after. Oh, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For in the times of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In his secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And my head will be lifted up against my enemies or above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Why? Because I'm like, why would I freak out? Psalm 18, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I won't fear. What can man do to me? And that's what we're going to see in our text. Psalm 46, 2, therefore we will not fear even if the earth be removed and although the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, I'm not going to worry about it. People are like, well, the world's falling apart. And we could say, it's about time you figured that out. We've been saying that for 2,000 years. Psalm 56, 4, in God I will praise his word. I put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? When God speaks to a young teenager, more than likely, named Jeremiah, he says in Jeremiah 1.8, Do not be afraid of their faces, because I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. In Psalm 34.4, When David feigned madness before King Abimelech and was delivered, he said, I sought the Lord. And he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And let me ask you something, because we are really close now to going through our text. It'll be quick, but prayerfully meaningful. There'll be three basic things we'll see in there as far as it. Here's my question. Could you even fathom being free from all your fear? Could you even fathom it having no effect on you whatsoever? That it no longer shackles you, chains you to nothingness? paralyzes you from decent hope and progress? Could you imagine being free from that? David could. So what's my heart's cry? Psalm 86, 11. Hear this with your heart. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in truth. And then I love this line. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's like when I'm not focused on you, my heart is going in every direction. It is falling apart and it's piece by piece scattering from the others like some form of crazy anti-magnet. And the psalmist just says, could you just take all of my heart, every part, every ambition, every value, and cram it together into one thing and then let that one thing look at you and go, wow. that's what he's asking. It's interesting because as a Christian, it's that fear that silences me. John 7.13 tells us, by the way, that though there were many who believed in him, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Even Joseph of Arimathea, who would ask for the body in John 19.38, says he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Is that you today? Well, you're afraid to tell people that you love 
about Jesus. Can I dare say the reason is because you're in the wrong place in the equation? And if your eyes could be on Jesus, that would change. I remind you, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Romans 8.15 goes a step beyond and says, For you did not receive again the spirit or the spirit again of bondage to fear. You received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Daddy, Abba. To this day, you can hear little boys calling to their father, Abba. That's not, excuse me, Father. It's a word of tenderness and intimacy. When Jesus looks at his disciples, including Peter, who had denied him thrice while Jesus was about to get beat to death, in Acts 1.8, he says, listen, you, the whole, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But understand the word power, dunamis, means the ability to overcome resistance. In other words, might I just roughly say it this way? Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have the ability to get over yourself. Oh, how I need that. So I understand why it says then in 1 John 4.18 that there's no fear in love. Because what real love is, is total selflessness. And I can't be totally selfish and totally selfless at the same time. How can I have an ungodly fear if I'm consumed with God's love? Because my focus won't be on me anymore. So, interesting, the last mention of fear in Scripture, well, it goes back to a godly fear in Revelation 19.5. When it says, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. It ends with those who look at God and go, Wow! How do we not praise In our text, as Jesus is sending out his twelve, he gives us three very basic points in regards to fighting this fear and getting the proper fear, fighting the ungodly fear, and claiming a godly one. Look at it with me as we cover this up now. Psalm twenty four. I'm sorry, Psalm Matthew ten twenty four. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. The first of these things, can I say, God makes really clear here. And I'm quoting now from Psalm 115, verse 6, as he speaks about idols. Actually, I'll start at verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold. They have men's hands, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they don't handle. Feet they have, but they don't walk. Nor do they mutter with their throat. And those who make them so will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. And let me just say, here's a simple statute 
And that is you become like what you worship. And as you become like what you worship, what you realize is if you worship money, it's selfless. I'm sorry, it's selfish, lifeless, and doesn't care about people, you'll become just like that. If you worship power, people are stepped to be stepped on to get above it, well then that's what you'll become. But Jesus says, it should be enough for you to become like me. And this is my first question to myself in this, is, is my goal truly to become like Jesus? Is it really what I want? Because if I'm to be loved, then I know that Jesus, by the way, is hated and disdained and mocked and opposed. Well, then I will be too. But if my primary goal is to be like him, that becomes less the issue. Because fear of man does bring a snare. Psalm, I'm sorry, Proverbs 29:25. But you trust in the Lord will be safe. And if he will, the first of our three things that I'd like to challenge us with is I need an identity ambition. And what that means is what I want, what I need, is to have a direction with how I see myself. How do I see myself? And what does a better me look like? How do I get there? I realize everything that I want to be is found in Jesus. And the more that I worship Him, the more that my sight is on Him, the more that I'm off of me and I look at Him and go, wow, the more I become like Him. And as the more I become like Him, it's exactly what it is. And He says, look it, if that's the case, if they're going to hate me, they're going to hate you. Get over it. Jesus doesn't lie or mince words about it. He doesn't give us an easy sell. He's like, look it, you've got to be at this place where you're really willing to let me become your focus. Not your nationality or your color or your race or your whatever. What you got to have in all of this is you got to have your eyes on me and say, I want to become like you. That doesn't mean every one of us wants to grow a beard and learn how to become a carpenter. But tender and kind and compassionate and loving, but serious about sin. He says, is this what you really want? Is what you really want to become like Jesus? Or is what you really want just to become cooler? To become more lights? To become more popular? To scream out for justice? But in that, not really looking like Jesus. Because in the end, even if everybody was nice but they went to hell, you wouldn't be being nice for it. So when I ask the first question, I ask is, who do I really want to be? Because that's where Jesus starts us here. And I realize if my eyes are on, not on Jesus about who I want to be, I'm going to be full of fear. But if my eyes are on Jesus and people start getting weird on me, I could say, well, at least I'm looking like you. And there's a peace in that. So the question again is, do you have an identity ambition? Do you have a place where it's like, you know, why do I want to be beyond this? What would be a better me? And then I read Scripture and I'm like, that's it all together. That song we sing, Make Me More Like You, it came out of that cry. The idea is, this is who you are, Jesus. This is exactly who I want to be. That's where the song was birthed, was in this very thing of, Well, what's it like to really have an identity ambition? I really want to be like you. Verse 27. Oh, by the way, one side note on that. He says, and look at it. If they called me Beelzebub. Beelzebub, by the way, means Lord of the Flies. 
Beelzebub, by the way, means Lord of the Dung. It's the play on the word. It goes all the way back from what it's worth, by the way. We see that particular term in First Kings, where Hatia, by the way, goes to inquire of him and Eliyahu. Elijah goes to him and says, what, is this because there's no real God in Israel? You're going to go find this guy? But think about that. The God over what? Things that hang around dead stuff, around waste, something that was once living that's now dead? Isn't that how the world kind of looks at us sometimes? Because we're a bunch of people congregating about something that's dead instead of living? He goes, well, if they're going to think that of Jesus, or they're going to think Jesus is still dead, they're going to think you're a nincompoop. Can I just say in love, get over it, get your eyes on Jesus, and let's tell them the truth anyways, because they need it. So whatever I tell you in the dark, verse 27, speak in the light. And whatever, I, whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Look at it. If it's really the truth, this is not to be quiet about. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him, and notice there's the fear of a proper fear, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Please hear me in this. What he tells us in this, in the simplest sense, is that what I really need in the second one is an eternal perspective. He says, look, you can fear the temporary, or you can be revering the eternal. But if you fear the temporary, you will never look past it to see what's eternal. But if I had an eternal perspective, I would look at you differently. I would look and say, how does she need to be invested eternally? How does he need to be invested eternally? Versus, well, how do I take care of a small need? He's cold. Let's give him a blanket. Well, and that's fairly, you know, personal at the moment, isn't it? They're hungry. Let's feed them. Hey, I'm all about feeding people and clothing people, but if we only do to take care of a temporary need, all I'm doing is looking at the temporary. The world is stuck under the bubble of the temporary. We are the only ones with an eternal perspective, and we got to do things driven by that view. And he looks and he says, listen, which one are you going to be fearful of? That which could cause the temporary or that which is the permanent? Because when you look at the permanent, all of the temporary looks temporary. And I realize what people chase after that's going to burn or be buried or get lost or whatever the case is or can be stolen or rust or corrupt. Jesus says all of that stuff is so temporary. <clears throat> but if you lay up your treasures in heaven, they can't be stolen. They never corrupt and they're there forever. Where are you going to choose? And beloved, please hear me in this, because we could spend our whole life doing so many amazing things and winning at Monopoly and then walking away and then living in a cardboard box. We can decorate our hotel rooms till we're so comfortable we never want to leave, but our home is infinite and beautiful where Jesus just provides everything and is everything we need. And we look and we get stuck in this. And let me ask you, when you look, are you stuck in this temporary place where what you see is I, there's a problem, there's an injustice now, or there's a weakness now, or there's a challenge now, or there's a question now. But these things are this thing. If I got it, I could get it now. But let's face it, even things that you love that you got for Christmas. How many of you are still excited about the things you got for Christmas? Even if you were like giddy, like a school child when you got it then. 
You got the iPhone 6. You even got the Plus. And it's big as a billboard. And it takes both hands and your feet to work it. And you're so excited about it. But the moment the iPhone 7 comes out, the thing's going to get ugly on you. Amazing how that works. Please hear me. If we really want to have a proper fear, a godly fear, well, it's got to start with this. It's got to start with how we see ourselves has to be consumed in who we see ourselves in. And then second, it's not just about how I see myself or where do I, what do I want to be. Well, and, and that's where we're at with this. But then I look and I kind of think, as I'm, I'm kind of seeing this, I kind of say, well, well what do I really want to see? What do I really want to pursue after? What's really important? Do I want to see the eternal in this or do I want to see the temporary? Because the temporary will always need new shining and to become new and improved. The lights will burn out and the batteries will die. No matter what it is, there's a time bomb on it. There is an expiration date and that includes the body that you carry. But listen, your body is not you. It's just your shell. The eternal part is the part that actually doesn't die when they lay that part in the grave. And that's the part that you really want to make sure you've invested in. And I want to say the same in regards to right now where you're at. The salvation you're looking for. Which one is it? Are you just looking for a little peace? A little hope? A little love? Are you genuinely looking for an eternal, lasting relationship with God who made you to be with Him? Because when that is proper, all the things you're looking for, even the temporary things, actually are part of the package. Well, with that in mind, we get to the third of them. So let me ask you, an identity, where do you want to be? Who do you really want to be? And then two, what do you really want to see? The temporary, the eternal. And then he says this, Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not yet one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Why is that so important? And we've talked about that a little bit last week. The word pito, the idea of something, it's not where, an, where a sparrow falls and dies. It's where it kind of lands, but it bounces like a ball. Sparrows are terrible flyers, and they're even worse landers. And so they bounce and they bounce and they bounce. And here's the point, is that God is extremely detail-oriented. And that's why he says even the hairs on your head are numbered. The idea of it is God doesn't miss a detail. He does not. It's not just like God means well and he loves you and he cares for you and he has all of this power and might, but he's really not that conscious of all of the minutia of details and the nuances that you have already filtered through and gone through and fingered through before you present God with the problem. Please understand, God knows your need before you present it. And as he knows your need, he knows the things you don't about it. He has actually cataloged every atom on you. I mean, there are parts of you, let's be honest, that unless you've got a whole lot of mirrors, you may never know. And God knows every one of them. He has full account and full record of every one of those. As I should say, who do I want to be? I want to be Jesus. I get that. What do I really want to see? I want to see the eternity that he actually lords over where everything is. That's my reality. Well, the third question really then is, 
was how do I really see God with me? Because what I really need is an intimate confidence. That's my third. I need to be confident, not just that God is almighty, and not just that God is all-knowing, and not just that God is all-present, ubiquitous, but that God is all-loving. It's one thing to rest in God's sovereignty and say, well, God's in control anyways. And it's another thing to think that God is brilliant and obsessed with me in the best of ways. And what he really wants is my best. And if I'm humble enough as I should be, I would recognize I really don't know what my best is. What's really best for me. I may know what may be best for the moment, but he knows what is best for eternity. I may know what is best in a way that will cater to my comfort, but God actually knows what will actually minister to my ministry. I may know what will actually ease me, and God will know what will actually strengthen me. I'd say, I really need this thing. And God says, no, you don't. You really want that thing. And we get so caught up in so many temporary, momentary distractions. I've watched people who were gifted at sharing the gospel. I mean, when they opened their mouth, people gave their life to Christ, get caught up in other issues in such a distraction. And they were, they're not like the issues don't have some importance, but they got so distracted that they stopped serving the things of eternity and started trying to minister to things under the cloud of the temporary, so much so that eternity was no longer impacted. But if I actually saw how intimate God's love was for me, As we see here, I understand why he gets to the end of this. Just look at the hairs on your head are numbered. Do you know why? It isn't because God's bored. It's because God is obsessed with you. It's because God is so loving, so driven to you, that he watches you when you can't. And you're so busy trying to look out for number one, but you're already number one in his eyes. And the more you look after you, where you're focusing on you, consume with you, the less you'll ever see how big in majesty, how infinite in glory, how undeniably loving and intimate this God is. Because then we have to reconcile the infinity of this beautiful God with the personal love he ushers us individually and like, how do I wrap my brain against uh, uh, around infinite loving the finite here in that sense? Well, I'm infinite too now. God made me infinite to the future. I had a beginning just like you. We just don't have an end. And with that, God says, this is what faith does. Faith doesn't try to put the two together in the sense of understanding. Faith just says, accept, faith accepts. You're infinite and perfect and holy, and yet you love little tiny me. And that intimacy sends me reeling like it should. So what's the reaction to all of this? Well, notice his application is in regards to boldness. 
He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my father. Whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my father. And I start thinking, do you realize what Jesus is saying here? I mean, what Jesus is saying, as we prepare to close this now, what Jesus is saying is an issue of salvation. Do you realize that? That's how heavy this is. I mean, put it this way, if you will, and and forgive me for putting it under this context, but this is how it makes sense to me as I'm in prayer. I see it as if you will, as if Jesus is standing there before Father and the Father is on the throne. He is the judge and jury, if you will. And you are brought before the Father. And His standard is perfection. That's His standard. There's nothing you can offer of yourself that's perfect. You can't say, my, well, I offered my prayers. And they're like, well, they're perfect. Well, I gave. Was your giving perfect? You know, well, my church attendance, was it perfect? Well, I was a nice person. But were you perfect? And of course, unless you're delusional, of course, you know better. The only thing that's perfect is Jesus. And the question is, do you know him? But more than just do you know him, are you in him? Because if you're not contagious, it's fairly likely you're not infected. And imagine, if you will, you're brought before Jesus, and the only question that God has to ask is to Jesus, not even to you. And it's, hey, do you know this guy? And Jesus is either going to say yes or no. But if we live our whole life thinking we're cool about it, but we're totally... Look, and I'm not telling you you have to go out there and bark unless God tells you to. But there's a difference between that and denying him. And if we stand before him, you know, denying him. I think of how Jesus speaks and whether that be to the, you know, friend, I, I never knew you. Isn't that what he says to the, to the goats? Even though you did all of these things, I never knew you. There's the problem, because if you really knew me, well, you wouldn't be able to stop. Here's the good news. Can you have been somebody that has denied Jesus but be redeemed from that? Why do you think Jesus tells us the story of Peter? Because he shows us that you could have been an ex-denier but now be a proclaimer. Now look, please hear me as we go to prayer now. Let me ask you again. What kind of fear are you driven by? Because either you're going to be driven by a selfish, worldly fear. And what will happen is your identity will get lost in that because you'll just get consumed. You'll let the problems define you. I think, is that really what I want? Which perspective are you living in? Do you have an eternal perspective? Or do you have a temporary perspective? Are the problems and the challenges that are set before you dragging you down to the temporary? Or are you actually saying, my God is actually bigger? And because he promised that he will work all things to my good, even this won't define me, but it will refine me and make me more like Jesus? Well, then I'm okay with that then. Is that really where I'm at? And how am I in my understanding of my relationship with God? 
do I see him that intimately? Because if I, first of all, had this intimate love with God, and then I birthed from that birth, from that, an eternal perspective, as it birthed an eternal perspective, and I saw wanting to be like Jesus as my goal, and then I looked at you, what would I do? I would want you to be like him too. I would want you to grow like him too. To have a shepherd's heart and a heart that's committed. And to look at people that would bother you and irritate you with great compassion. And often the most challenging being the ones who need the greatest love. So hear me as we go to prayer. If this is about openly proclaiming love, well then clearly that has to take us to Jesus doing that. And of course we get exactly that at the cross. The whole idea of Jesus, there was nothing secret about Jesus hanging at the cross. He hung naked for the world to see because the wages of our sin is death and Jesus and his love for you personally, your name, not just us, but you personally, was so important to him that he was willing to take your sins upon him. The strike of the mouth for the mouth of blasphemy. The crown of heads for false exaltation. The whipping on the back for the back of a fool. The smiting for a mocker. Have you done those things? I have. The brutality for those who have been brutal. Be it in heart or in mind or in intention or in action. Have you been that? I have. The hanging on the cross because you're a guilty person that has stood against the kingdom. I have. There's no part of Jesus' suffering that I think, well, that part's probably for the really bad people, but not for me. Because even if there was a category like really bad people, I would be in it. And no matter how crazy and awful, horrible you've been, how unforgivable you think you are, the message of the cross says, no, you're not. You are loved and you are wanted. But love comes with a choice. Will you accept that gift? Because the way this relationship starts is like any relationship starting. You have a choice to make. Am I going to let this relationship blossom? Am I going to let this pursuit be a real one? Or am I going to kind of manby-pamby flow on this thing until something happens? Here's the good news. God is in hot pursuit of you. And how do I know that? Because you're here. On Palm Sunday, you are here. And on Palm Sunday, my God wants you to know he is in hot pursuit of you individually. And what he wants is your choice. So, as we go to prayer, I would love first to pray with those who are sure they've made a claim to Christ. And in that prayer to say, all right, God, those very things deliver me to a proper fear of you. A godly fear. And then, I'll invite any and all of you who have yet to make a... If you're not sure, you could be sure today... You can to make that choice to say yes to Jesus. We're going to pray a prayer together right where you're at, right where I'm at. And today, God's going to do something amazing in your life. He's going to make you brand new here, wash you clean, and give you His innocence. So pray with me, would you please? God in heaven, I want to thank you for this precious flock. 
and for the five plus years that you've given us. I want to thank you, Lord, for how our purpose for being here is exactly that. To become like you. And the more we worship you and we set our heart and mind to focus on you, the more we seek to become like you, the more your spirit that lives inside of us does that work. And we want to know you better. We don't want to make you up. We want to know you for who you really are in your word. And in that we pray that you would take every ambition that we have in our identity and take that and make it now. Re-commandeer it to say, make me all like you. In every attitude, in every value, in every priority, where eternity is the setting and people are the thing. And the cross is the tool to set them free. So, give us a fresh identity ambition. Please. And as well, we confess to you that it is so easy to get trapped under the things of this world and make the momentary like it's eternity. But we recognize that when you pull us out and show us eternity, everything else changes. And everything else becomes so small in comparison. But I confess to you, it's not just about seeing problems as small. It's about seeing people as important. And when you show me eternity, I recognize we're not going to spend eternity in this church building or on these pews or, or whatever. But we are going to spend eternity either with each other or not. Give us a value for what is eternal. Let us, pl- let us place proper priority on that which is passing and that which is persevering so that we would not put persevering, permanent attention on something that will actually not last even as long as we would set our attention to. And get us back where we belong, God, with you. Give us an eternal perspective, please. And here in this room right now, give us this overwhelming, clear sense of a confidence and the intimacy you desire with us. That we would, God, please, that we would recognize today that this is all to be intimate with us. So strip away the nonsense and get us back to that place where we're so infected with you that we become contagious. And while heads are bowed, And eyes are closed. In this last minute of prayer, I ask, have you said yes to the gift of Jesus at the cross? I'd like to invite you with a simple prayer that confesses Him as Lord and Savior. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner like every man's a sinner. 
But I recognize that you want me and that you love me. And in love for me, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. That all my filth could be punished without me having to spend eternity away from you. And on the cross, just like Scripture promised, he died, was buried, and just like Scripture promised, he was raised on the third day to be more than just my dead ransom, but my living Lord. So with that in mind, I say yes to Jesus, confessing him as my Lord and as my Savior. I say yes to him now. I know my heart's racing, and I may not understand all of this, but I understand this. If you really want to do that, I'd be a fool to say no. So I say yes. Have me now. I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen.